0: and welcome back to the violence and gender podcast I'm Jennifer Kuhn and today I'm joined by the journals editor-in-chief dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole of the George Mason University and deputy editor dr. Anna Satterfield of Texas A&M University today we have a very special guest dr. Lacey Wallace who is joining us from self quarantine due to the covid 19 pandemic from her home in Pennsylvania Dr. Wallace is joining us to talk about our special two-part issue of the journal on the topic of gun violence. Welcome, everyone. At this time, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. O'Toole and Dr. Satterfield to take it away. Good morning, Dr. Wallace, and thank you so much
1: for joining us. Let me start by asking you this. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to serve as the guest editor for this two-part special issue on gun violence for violence and gender?
2: Sure. Uh, Ironically, though, I didn't start out as a gun researcher Uh, growing up and going through college and then graduate school. My interest has always been in juvenile delinquency and how peers and family shape behavior, especially criminal behavior. But what happened was, in graduate school, I was teaching an Introduction to Criminal Justice course, and a student asked me a question about Castle Doctrine laws, which are laws that basically provide criminal and civil protections for people who use guns in self-defense. And at the time, I had barely heard of them, I really didn't know much about them, but I promised that student that I would go find out what I could, and so I went home that night And I did some digging and discovered that there was next to nothing research-wise published about them. And then when I did a little more digging, I realized there really wasn't much about gun violence or gun purchasing or gun accessories or gun policy in general. And what was out there was really limited to just a few authors. Some of it was really old. Some of it seemed more on the biased side, which made me a little nervous. But that really got me interested in guns and gun policy and wanting to, contribute to a field where it seemed like there wasn't really much research going on. And that really got me started. And through the years, I've studied Castle Doctrine, but I've also studied other areas with gun violence, including teens who carry guns to schools and other places, the effects of gun policy and news media on gun purchasing, and even the effects of mass shootings on people's purchasing behaviors. But through that all, because there's not much federal funding or support for this kind of research, there's a lot of Fear about doing research on such a controversial topic. So when Mary Ellen from The Journal called me back in 2018 about a possible special issue, I was ecstatic because I felt like this is a chance to help bring some of the research together in one place to really contribute to this field of study and also to interact with other researchers who are, were in a similar position on trying to study a, a tough topic with limited funding and support.
3: Thanks for sharing that with us. And your research interests are just fantastic and will contribute a lot to our journal. What do you hope this two-part special issue will accomplish? Or what future research do you think will see emphasized as a result of this release?
2: Well, I think for starters, this special issue really helps bring a lot of scattered research together in one place. And what I mean by scattered is that gun violence research spans a lot of disciplines. You have folks publishing out of public health. You have folks publishing out of sociology, psychology, and other fields. And unfortunately, that means a lot of what's out there, though excellent research for sure, is kind of in its own silo. There's psychology journals, there's sociology journals, there's public health journals. And so for someone trying to get a feel for what the research as a whole says about the topic, that makes it really challenging. So I really hope this special issue helps to bring together a lot of related issues and a lot of related studies in one place, which will make it more accessible to both researchers as well as policymakers and practitioners. And I think the just overwhelming response to our call for papers really helps show that there's a strong interest here for that. I also think that this special issue will really emphasize the role of gender in gun violence too often when people hear the word gun or gun violence, they think of men. They don't think of women. They don't think of people with other gender identities. And yet, we know that gender plays a significant role in victimization, in gun purchasing, and gun attitudes, the works. And I think having this journal in particular house this special issue will help to bring that emphasis and maybe encourage folks to include gender and gender identity in their gun violence research who haven't already. And lastly, I hope that this special issue shows that gun violence is more than homicide and assault. Uh, Again, too often we forget that these broad terms leave out a lot. Gun violence, for instance, includes suicide, which often gets left out of the gun violence conversation. Gun violence also includes threats or people brandishing weapons. And those statistics also get left out of the conversation because they're frequently under or unreported topics. So I think that this special issue really brings emphasis and brings understanding in a variety of ways.
1: Dr. Wallace, I'm sure it's impossible for you to choose a favorite, but what paper or papers from these special issues do you think are absolute must-reads for our listeners and for our readers and for our experts out there?
2: One in particular that really drew me was by Clark and colleagues, and it's titled Sexual Orientation Differences in Gun Ownership and Beliefs About Gun Safety Policy." And this one really drew me because when it came across my desk, I sort of stared at it and went sexual orientation and safety and gun purchasing, you know, what, what is this? It had never really occurred to me at the time to think about the link between sexual orientation and gun ownership. So the title alone grabbed me and immediately kind of made me sit and think. And the authors ended up finding that there were significant differences. They, they ended up noting that gay and bisexual men, as well as lesbian and bisexual women, were more likely to endorse gun safety law that they were studying using the General Social Survey responses. So they found that there were key differences there. And part of the reason I felt like this study was especially interesting was that we know there are links to domestic violence and other patterns in the LGBTQ plus community, and this study really helps highlight that that ties into gun ownerships and gun beliefs as well, and I was really nice to see those two fields connect in one study. So for me, that's one that I've just, you know, never forgotten. I've seen many of these other studies cross my desk, but for some reason that one just stuck with me as an unexpected, wonderful read, and a connector across multiple fields.
3: What are some of the recent legislation issues of importance for our community to know about as it relates to gun violence.
2: Well, for me, since a lot of my early research and continuing research is on juveniles i'm really interested to see what the long-term impact will be of the so-called raise the age legislation and for those who aren't familiar with it after some recent mass shootings there was a push across the country to raise the purchasing age for firearms in general but also the specific types of firearms but we don't yet know what the long-term impact of that is will it actually reduce juvenile access to firearms overall will reduce the number of mass shootings. We really don't know what that long-term impact is. So for me, I'm very curious if that will have the desired effect that many think and hope it will. A second that I'm really interested in are these red flag laws, which again, for those who are not very familiar with them, are laws that allow law enforcement or courts to temporarily remove firearms from an individual or their home if they pose a significant risk of harm to self or others. So if they have suicide or violence risk. And for me as a criminal justice researcher, I'm always interested in, you know, due process is a fascination for me. More importantly, these are, are very temporary practices. We don't really know what happens when the removal period expires. Do people go out and and buy more guns? Do they resume their violent or suicidal behavior? And also what happens while uh, the guns have been removed from their homes and from their possession? Do they seek out firearms from other sources or do they respect the removal order uh, that's in place? But right now it's too early to know some of those impacts. Uh, Many of these laws were passed in the last year or, or maybe two tops. So we're still waiting to see what some of those longer-term impacts will be.
1: Dr. Wallace, as we all know, we're currently in the middle of a global pandemic related to the COVID-19 disease. And we've seen reports about upticks in first-time gun ownership and worries about domestic violence. What's your take on that?
2: Well, what strikes me is that I've I've studied gun purchasing after mass shootings, and I've seen a really similar pattern. And it makes me wonder if even though this is a a disease pandemic as opposed to a shooting, we're still seeing some of the same uh, psychological processes happening. And what I've found in my research is that the uptick in gun purchasing is related to two types of fear. One is essentially fear of vulnerability, fear of becoming a victim. And so some people go out and they buy firearms as a self-defense mechanism. And that may certainly be part of what we're seeing right now. There's a lot of uncertainty about the future. There's widespread unemployment. There's a lot of fear about what will come in the coming months, And so I imagine that some of what we're seeing is that response to vulnerability. Purchasing a firearm may make people feel more in power or more in control of the situation. It might help them feel safer if they worry about looting or burglary or something else resulting from what's going on in our country right now. The other type of fear that I've seen in my research is fear of essentially increasing regulations or fear that it will get harder to purchase a gun in the future. And I think that also makes sense right now. Pennsylvania is one of many states right now that's under a stay-at-home order. Unless it's considered essential to life, like a grocery store or or a hospital or something like that, uh, most stores have shut down. And so there may genuinely have been, uh, especially early on, fear of being unable to purchase a firearm, because if these businesses are not open, you can't purchase or it's it's very difficult to purchase. And that may also be driving some of the behavior that we're seeing as well. So I, I found it very striking that the same trends I've seen after mass shootings seem to pop up here, but those underlying processes seem to be really similar.
3: This is all so interesting, and before we leave, do you have any last points you'd like to make or thoughts to share with any of our listeners?
2: I had a couple that came to mind. One is that I always like to caution everyone against kind of overgeneralizing. Too often we talk about all gun owners as some sort of homogenous group of people, or we talk about what Republicans think or what Democrats think especially during an election year. But I think it's important in these times to remember that how people think and feel about guns and gun violence is very complex, that not all gun owners feel the same way, not all Republicans feel the same way, not all Democrats feel the same way. And so we have to be careful not to overgeneralize or create kind of an us versus them type of conversation. And I think the second point I'd like to offer is that we really need more voices and perspectives at the table. Too often, I've noticed that researchers are afraid to publish in the field of gun violence or gun policy because they don't want to be seen as political or they don't want to be attacked for what they have found. But unfortunately, when people choose not to study the topic or remain silent and don't publish what they find, we lose out on valuable information that could help to save lives in the future. So, although it may bring rise to uncomfortable conversations those conversations need to happen Gun violence remains a significant cause of death for adults and, to some degree, juveniles in the United States, and a very preventable cause of death. But in order to address it properly, we need many voices, many perspectives, having civil conversations about how we respond. We have a common goal, which is preventing gun violence, preventing gun death. So even though we might have different ideas about how to approach it, I think having a common goal can be a uniting factor.
1: I would like to thank you, Dr. Wallace, and of course, Dr. Satterfield for participating in this podcast. I think our readers will really learn a lot. And the idea of educating them to a wide variety of gun violence perspectives, I think is critical, especially at a time like this. So thank you both very much. And I wish you well.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. O'Toole and Dr. Satterfield for hosting. And of course, Dr. Wallace, thank you so much for joining us. For those of you listening in, be sure to check out this two-part special issue on gun violence by visiting the journal online at www.liebertpub.com. While you're there, you can also learn more about how you can subscribe, peer review, publish, or use the journal in your classroom. We encourage you to submit your work to Violence and Gender, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening, everybody.